Section 3 of Harper's Young People, Volume 1, Issue 27, May 4, 1880. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Read by Larry Wilson. Harper's Young People, Volume 1, Issue 27, May 4, 1880. The Story of George Washington, Chapter 4, and Making Maple Sugar. The Story of George Washington by Edward Carey, Chapter 4. In the last chapter I told you how Washington kept the British out of Philadelphia during the winter of 1776 and 1777. The next year the British came round from New York by water with a large and fine army. Washington's army was badly trained, and many of them were new men. A bloody battle was fought below Philadelphia on the Brandywine Creek, and the Americans were divided and beaten. The British marched into Philadelphia, and in spite of all that Washington could do, stayed there that winter, and the Americans went into camp at Valley Forge, some twenty miles away. It was a terrible winter, and often the soldiers were barefoot and otherwise naked, as Washington wrote to Congress, and food was often very hard to get. Some members of Congress found fault with Washington for not attacking the enemy. He answered, I can assure these gentlemen that it is a much easier and less distressing thing to draw remonstrances in a comfortable room by a good fireside than to occupy a cold bleak hill and sleep under frost and snow without clothes or blankets. During the winter, Mrs. Washington came on from Virginia and shared her husband's log hut. But after the long, hard winter at Valley Forge, the spring of 1778 opened with new hopes. The French government had signed a treaty with the United States, agreeing to aid them with men and money, and a fleet of French ships was sent to America. The British, finding Philadelphia hardly worth the hard fighting it had cost, since they could not get far away from it, or hurt the American army very much while in the city, got ready to leave it and go back to New York. Washington followed hard after them, and a heavy battle was fought at Monmouth in New Jersey, from which neither side gained a great deal. The British got back into New York, and Washington took his men up the Hudson, and kept them there watching a chance to join in some attack with the French troops who came to Newport in the state of Rhode Island. For the next three years there was not any very hard fighting under Washington's own command, but his cares were scarcely less. He had to keep watch of all that was going on, and to have his army ready to strike at a moment's warning. Waiting and watching were tedious work. They tried his patience and his firmness. A weaker man would have given up, but Washington was not any more easily tired than he was frightened. He held steadily to his task and tried hard to keep his countrymen, many of whom were weary of the war, up to their duty. At one time the cause of liberty was nearly ruined by a traitor. General Benedict Arnold tried to sell the British a fort at West Point, on the Hudson River. If the British could have got that, the states north and east of New York would have been cut off from the rest, and probably they would have all been conquered. Happily, the plot failed. This was in 1780. The next year Washington really closed the war by a splendid move. A large army of the British had been sent to Virginia under Lord Cornwallis, in hopes to cut the troops who were farther south off from the connection with the north. Washington sent a gallant young French general, Lafayette, whom he loved and trusted greatly, to prevent this. 
lafayette had a small force but he was quick and brave and shrewd and he managed to get the british shut up in yorktown near the chesapeake bay there he learned that a french fleet under comte de grasse would soon arrive he sent urgent word to washington to come south right away washington straightway marched with nearly all his army and most of the french troops for virginia they arrived on the fourteenth of september seventeen eighty one just in time the french fleet sailed up the bay the american french troops came down on the land side and between them they shut the british general in the little village of yorktown and there they laid siege to his army when they had got pretty close to the town they had to drive the british from some redoubts or walls of earth and stone behind which they had planted their cannons this was done by a party of americans under the gallant lafayette and a party of french soldiers they marched steadily up to the redoubts and springing over the walls under heavy fire drove the enemy out with their bayonets it was a brave assault and successful and it was the last hard fighting of the war on the nineteenth of october lord cornwallis seeing that he could hold out no longer surrendered his army prisoners of war it was a great victory and was won with less loss of life than there might have been if it had been less skilfully fought for washington had managed so quietly and so quickly that he had surrounded lord cornwallis with nearly twice as many troops as the british general had after the surrender at yorktown washington returned north and on his way stopped at his home at mount vernon he had slept there on his journey southward a few weeks before for the first time in nearly seven years and he had found it sadly injured in his absence during his second visit his wife's son mr custis died leaving a son and daughter whom washington adopted as his own and tenderly cared for as long as he lived to be continued making maple sugar when in the early springtime the snow and ice have been so softened by the ever-increasing warmth of the sun's rays as to put an end to coasting skating and other winter sports of the north the new source of amusement equally fascinating to the children is provided it is maple sugar making with all the delights of life in the camp or sugar bush as it is more generally called when the heat of the sun is sufficient to melt the snow it is also powerful enough to send the sweet sap of the rock and sugar maples rushing through all the delicate bark veins up toward the branches and twigs at night when the sun has set and the air is full of a nipping frost the sap does not run so as it must be collected during the daytime the boiling is very often done at night as the first sap of the season is the sweetest and most abundant the sugar makers are on the ground and making ready their camps upon the first indications of sap weather as they call it the sap runs according to locality from the last of february until late in april and the sugar season lasts about four weeks in each place when the farmer thinks that sap weather is about setting in he calls his boys together they load the big kettles and camp material on the ox sleds and start for the bush or grove of maple trees which is often many miles from the house when they reach the maple grove all hands find plenty to do if it is a warm day the trees must be immediately tapped and a couple of boys are started off with a sled load of iron spiles each about six inches long and a quantity of sap buckets or short wooden troughs that have been cut out during the long winter evenings a slight cut is made through the bark of each tree and an auger hole is bored a spile driven in directly beneath it and at the foot of the tree is left a trough 
so arranged as to catch the sap as it drips from the end of the spile while the trees are being tapped the men left in camp have been busy enough building the rude shanties of logs and spruce boughs that are to shelter them while they remain in the bush cutting quantities of firewood and swinging the great kettles into place on the iron bar that rests on two forked posts solidly fixed in the ground sometimes great shallow pans of iron set upon rude foundations of stone are used instead of the kettles and the shanty in which the men live is often a very permanent structure of logs that can be used for many years late in the afternoon the sleds each carrying a large cask of hogshead are sent around to the maple trees all the sap buckets are emptied and finally the casks full of what tastes like sweetened water are drawn slowly back to the camp the sap is poured into the big kettles the fires lighted and the syruping down begins the pans or kettles are kept constantly full from the barrels of sap standing near by and sometimes the bubbling liquid boils over when it does this a bit of bacon is thrown in and the troubled waters subside the boiling is continued until the watery sap has been changed into a rich syrup when it is drawn off into casks for future use or into other iron kettles to be boiled again until it becomes sugar this second boiling must be done very carefully or the syrup will become burned and spoiled it is constantly stirred with a long-handled wooden paddle and both eggs and milk are often thrown in to purify it the scum that rises to the top is carefully removed and thrown out on the snow to the delight of the children who watch for it to cool and partially harden they call it maple candy or taffy and regard it as a treat when by testing on the snow or in cold water the syrup is found to have boiled long enough it is run into moulds where it cools into cakes of maple sugar or the kettle is lifted from the fire and its contents stirred and beaten as they cool until they become coarse brown sugar that can be used in cooking end of section three